Hi. All right. So we jump in to the pivot point. This is it. This is the moment. This is what this isn't. This isn't just what this week has led up to. All of human history is pointing to the moment where a man named Jesus, who claimed to be God, was up on a cross. Heaven holds its breath, and this is. This, there's only two options. Either that guy stays dead, and we put him with all of the other people in history who claim to be God, or he beats death, and everything changes. And that's the picture that we get. That's what we get to celebrate tonight. And and, and here's what I want you to understand. I talked about it on day one, to tell you the truth, to not reserve anything, to not sugarcoat it. And tonight, without manipulation or emotion or anything else like that, I want to present to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. After Jesus ascends, he, he rises back from the dead, and then he goes into heaven. And thousands of people gather, and they're all curious, what do we do about this? You see, the people in Jerusalem knew the story. They had seen Jesus and what he was doing. They knew his, his miracles. They knew the story. They knew everything about it. And so they're sitting there waiting. They're waiting for the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, to come and explain what to do about these facts. They've seen it. They watched Rome crucify him, and they all walked away. They said, well, that guy's done. And then they saw him again. And now they're going, now what do I do? Peter stands up. The same Peter who rejects Jesus, and he looks in the faces of thousands of people, and they all cry out to him, what do we do? How do we respond to this? And Peter responds, and he says, if you want to be saved, you must, and then presents in the gospel that I'm going to present to you tonight. It's no tricks, no sleight of hand. We're going to be reading it straight from the text so you can read it firsthand. I don't want you to hear my words. I want you to hear the words of God. They're much more important than mine. They make much clearer sense. And when the Bible promises that the word of God never returns void, it never promises that the word of Christ will never return void. So I'm going to let Jesus speak for himself on what we do in response to what he's done, okay? Walk with me. Here we go. We got we to gotta catch up in the book of John, though. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them. And yesterday we looked at John chapter 8 where Jesus walks in front of this adulterous woman and the adulterous woman is accused. One, we said it again last night when we talked about sin and the truth about sin that the, the, the lies that we tend to believe is that we are good people. We believe that lie. That all paths lead to God. If, as long as we earnestly seek him, that is a lie. You have to go through Jesus. And thirdly, a good God would not send good people to hell. And we talked about how that was a lie. It's been so encouraging hearing so many of you come up to me during free time and during the apologetic seminar today for just, it was awesome. It's like you guys, you guys clued in, you asked good, difficult questions, and then I think I sat on that stage for another hour and a half just talking to you guys, and it was really fun to be able to do that. So um, we watched this woman, and she's caught, and Jesus walks up, and he doesn't say, don't worry, this isn't that big of a deal, or it's okay, your friends are worse than you. He doesn't claim her guilt-free. He says, there is no condemnation for you, and he points to a moment where he will take her burden, he will take her debt, and he will pay it. That's John chapter 8. In John chapter 9, Jesus meets a blind man. If you want to flip through, I'm going to be going over this at 30,000 feet, so we're not going to be diving into these stories, because we've got to get through 11 chapters right now, so buckle up. And here we go. 
Chapter 9, Jesus meets these people, this, this man who is blind, and he walks up to him, and he, op- he gives him sight once again. And when he's doing so, he's kind of helping the disciples realize, you guys, even though I healed this man who's physically blind, if you don't wake up, you suffer from spiritual blindness. He's pointing at them, and he's saying, if you don't understand who I am, you're going to be blinded by your expectations of me, which we talked about two nights ago. We all have an expectation of what Jesus should do, would do, can do. And Jesus came and tore all those down. And he says, if you don't see me clearly, like this man with new open eyes, you're going to miss the point of why I came. That's John chapter 9. John chapter 10, and Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. He says, there's a lot of things in the law. There's a lot of things you must understand about me. But then he says this phrase, I am the good shepherd. And just like a good shepherd, if a wolf comes and attacks, the shepherd walks out of the pen to protect the sheep, and he lays down his life for his sheep. I am the gate, Jesus says. I am the gate. No one comes in or comes out of my pasture without me knowing. And when the bear and the wolf and the lion comes, I will fight them because I love the sheep and the sheep know my voice. Satan, he has come, John 10, 10. The the thief, Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 11, we see the very depths of the the pain of sin in the world when Jesus loses one of his best friends named Lazarus. He walks to the tomb, John 11, 35. Jesus weeps bitterly over what sin has taken away. You see, the gods of this time, this is important that you know, it's the gods of this time in the polytheistic nature of Greece and Rome and Hellenism sweeping over the world when, the, when the, the people who spoke about the gods of Rome and the gods of Greece spoke about them, they had a characteristic they assigned to the gods. They would use the term, all of the gods of the pantheon are apatheia. Apatheia. What word does it sound like? Apathetic. You see, the culture that Jesus walks into when he is God in human flesh the, the way that culture sees the gods, they're apathetic. They don't care about us. They're not interested in us. They don't, they're not concerned with us. The gods like to mess with each other, and they wage war against each other. But if you ask any of the gods of the pantheon, uh, uh, Juno, Hades, Zeus, uh, Hermes, all these other gods, what do you think about humans? The people all said, when it comes to humans, the gods are apatheia. They don't care. And now in John chapter 11, we watch Jesus standing beside the tomb of his dead friend, and it says he weeps Bitterly, friends, we do not have an apatheia God. We have a God who has been bruised and beaten every way that you will. And yet, one day we will see him face to face. And do you want to know the confidence that comes when you see him face to face? You are not going to see a Jesus. When you pray to God and you go, God, I'm really going through right now. I'm, I'm in the middle of suffering. I'm in the middle of grief. I'm in the middle of pain. We do not have a Jesus who goes, what's pain? What's grief? What's suffering? What's betrayal? What's humiliation? What's bullying? What's pain? What's anguish? What's anxiety? Jesus would never say any of that. Do you want to know why? Because the book of Hebrews chapter 4 says this, our great high priest is not incapable of sympathizing with our pain because he went through everything humanly possible in order to pay for your sins, which means when you pray to Jesus, you've got a God nodding back going, I know. I know, friend. I know, loved one. I know, son. I know, daughter. Me too. I know. And he beckons us. Come to my throne. Hebrews 4, 24 and 25. Therefore, because of that, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Because he was tried and tempted in every way, and yet he sinned not. 
John chapter 11, we watch Jesus dive into the depth of humanity as his best friend dies. John chapter 12 comes. It's time for the Passion Week to start. The word passion means suffering. The time for Jesus' suffering has begun. He enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And where does he come into? He enters through East Gate. The East Gate is the place where only kings coming home from war would ride through. So what's Jesus doing, you guys? Jesus is ticking a lot of people off. You don't ride through that gate. Jesus is ready for his time of glory to come. He knows this is going to start a war. He knows there's a powder keg in Jerusalem. Millions of people have gathered for the Passover service, for the Passover lamb to, to have this festival, this religious festival. In the middle of all of that, when tensions are high, all the city stops and looks over at a five-foot-five five Jewish guy riding in on a donkey through the east gate. And in doing so, everyone goes, only kings come through that gate. And Jesus goes, ma'am, sir. And the division starts. One, one group of people starts going, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They recognize Jesus as the Messiah. When Messiah comes, this is the guy. They start putting, the, they push their chips in. I think this is the one we've been waiting for. And there's two different groups. Rome is saying, shut up. The Jewish religious leaders are saying, it's not him. And the people start to recognize him. But what do the people shout? Save us now. What are they talking about? Save us from what? Rome. They call to Jesus, go over. If you're the king of the universe, then take care of our Roman problem. If you're the king of the universe, then set us free from physical oppression. And Jesus says, you missed it. You missed it. I didn't come to make your 60, 70 years comfortable here. I didn't come to overthrow Rome. I came to overthrow the slave master of your very soul. I didn't come that Rome would stop besieging you. I didn't come that Rome would go away. I came that your sin solution would be solved. And it says Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. John chapter 13, it gets even worse. He brings all of his disciples into the upper room. They're going to celebrate the Passover. And as they go to celebrate the Passover, all of his disciples, they all walk in and no one washes anyone's feet. And Jesus gets up and it says in the book of John, though all authority and power had been given to him, he takes off his robe, he puts a towel around his waist, and then he kneels down and he washes each of his disciples' feet. This was a job for the lowliest of the servants. Jesus demonstrates, as it says in the book of John, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What should we do in response to this? John 13, 35. They will know that you are my followers by the way that you love one another. A new command I give to you. A new mandatum, which is what we call it, mandi, mandatum Thursday. He gives them a new command. Love one another. That's chapter 13. Chapter 14 our key passage, one of our key passages for this week. Jesus is questioning what's going to come next. What are you going to do? And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a beautiful place for you. I'm going to go up there and make it, and it's going to be completely customized to how much I know and love you. But I have to go somewhere first, and where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Where are you going, the disciples ask. Jesus says, I'm going to where you cannot go. Thomas replies, well, then how will we know the way? Jesus responds, because I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 14, which moves then into John chapter 15, where Jesus tells them, if you want to see the Father, you must remain in me. Remain, 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 remain. When the world calls you away, you remain, you remain. When 
culture pulls you, you remain, you remain. When you get in a new relationship and they pull you away from Jesus, instead you need to remain, remain. The one who remains in me will see the Father's face. John chapter 16, how are you going to do that? seems like, ah, that's a lofty thing for me to remain in you. Jesus says, don't worry. I'm going to leave and I'm going to send someone greater than me. Everyone goes, what could possibly be greater than you? Jesus says, I am found in human form. I'm confined to one place because I've chosen to be, but I will send a Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper, the comforter. And when I die, I'm going to ascend into heaven, but I will send my Holy Spirit to indwell in all of you. See, at that time, you had to go to the temple to meet with God. From here on out, God is going to tear down the walls of the temple, tear the veil that separates man and God. It's going to rip from top to bottom, starting with God down to man, and the Holy Spirit is going to live inside of every believer. But first, Jesus must be crucified. John chapter 17, Jesus prays for the contentment and the movement of his disciples. He prays for the fervor and the passion to carry out what we must carry out. For some reason, when I was a kid, I thought when Jesus went to the cross, he was like happy to do so. I don't know why, because you know what he's going to face. But I thought Jesus was like, oh, is it today? Fantastic. Here we go. Time to be whipped and beaten and stripped naked and humiliated and insulted and spit on and whipped 39 times the cat of nine tails, which is these leather straps that are long with bits of bone and teeth and uh, copper and rocks. And he's hit 39 times because 40 is a death sentence, as if that makes a difference. After that, they humiliate him by saying, oh, don't you think you're the king of the Jews? Let's make him a crown then. And they make him a crown of thorns. And don't think rose thorns that are like this long. If you look at a crown of thorns bush that still exists in Jerusalem today, the thorns are about that long. That is put on his head and then they use a stick to hit it into his skull. Jesus, this is what Jesus knows is going to happen. And so in the garden, he's crying out, Lord, Lord, if there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of wrath that you and I deserve to drink. There's a cup in front of every soul that's ever lived, and it's the wrath of God. It's our rebellion, and it's been poured in full for everything that we've done, for the mutiny of our heart, for the treason of our crimes, and for everything that we've done wrong. The cup exists, and there are two kinds of people in all of human history, those who drink that cup themselves and go to hell, and those who push that cup across the table to Jesus, and he takes it to the cross and drinks it in full. If there is any way, Jesus says, to let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as your will be done. The father's response is simply, son, there is no other way. Jesus stands up and he prepares himself for what's about to happen. John chapter 18, a man named Judas who is one of his followers, he's not into this whole Messiah thing. He doesn't think it's actually Jesus. So he walks up, and a good way of uh, introducing yourself back then was to give your brother a kiss on the cheek. This is also a way of signifying a selective person out of a group. So Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses him on the cheek. The Roman guard is behind him. You see, Judas has betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we go, oh my goodness, that's so low. That's so messed up. He betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Friend, I've betrayed him for free. Haven't you? Have you not stood in a room where people are talking badly about Jesus or they ask you a question about your faith and you shy away from it and you turn them in for free? 
I mean, at least Judas got something for it, you know? I do it voluntarily because I'm a dumpster fire. And because sin pervades the human heart, we turn Jesus in again and again, day after day, lest we think we're better than Judas. I am a betrayer too, as are you. Betrayed, he then walks, and he has to stand trial, first in front of the Jews who say, you have broken our law. What does he get accused of? Caiaphas, the high priest, priest says, you have broken our law, for you, being a man, claim to be God. He looks at him, and I love this moment. The question simply posed to Jesus, are you Jesus the Christ, the King of the Jews? In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3, Moses is in the desert and he, he stumbles upon a burning bush and Moses looks at it and it's God the Father, it's Yahweh, it's the angel of the Lord, it's the pre-incarnate Jesus and they're all there and Yahweh, div, div, the divine name, he reveals it to Moses. Moses says, what should I call you? When Pharaoh asked, who, are you, who is saying to let my people go? What should I say? Yahweh, the God of the universe out of the burning bush says, just tell him, my name is I am. In the Greek, ego eimi. So, that's so good. So he stands in front of this whole pro-council that has the power to sentence him to death. Everyone knows his disciples, Nicodemus, these other Pharisees are there who are actually don't want Jesus to die. And they're praying and they're thinking, Jesus, just, 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 just say it's not you. Just, just give in. Just recant. Just, just say, you don't, you don't think you're God. Just get out of this. Just go free. Jesus has a totally different agenda. He is asked point blank, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't, doesn't just say yes. He says, ego eimi. He quotes Exodus chapter 3. He quotes the divine name and says, it is me. I am that I am. This was so repugnant to the Jews that the high priest, it says, he rips off his clothes because he's so upset at the blasphemy that was spoken. He tears his clothes and he says, crucify him, crucify him. But if you are the Jewish nation, you don't have permission to put people to death because the Jews were underneath the vassal state of Rome. They've got to get permission from Rome to kill him. The Roman prefect at the time is named Pontius Pilate. So they walk up to Pontius Pilate and they say, this guy's starting an uproar. You don't want an uproar in your city, do you, Pontius Pilate? That would be a really bad look on your resume. When Caesar put you in charge, he meant for you to keep the peace. And if you don't kill this guy, his followers are going to rise up against you and they're going to freak out. They think he's God. And whatever he says they do, imagine if this man said to take down Rome. His followers would do it. Not only that, you know what he claimed to do? He claimed to tear down our temple. He said he's going to tear down our temple and build it back in three days. That's not what Jesus said. He pointed at himself and he said, if you destroy this temple, I will build it again in three days, prophesying his very resurrection. But Caiaphas doesn't care. The trial is rigged. Pontius Pilate starts to circle Jesus. What do I do with this man? Pontius Pilate is married to a woman who looks at Jesus and goes, uh-uh, mm-mm, you leave that guy alone. That guy freaks me out. I've heard his stories. That guy creeps me. He is, he's been doing miracles. He raised a dead guy. He raised this other girl. No, you don't touch him. Have nothing to do with that man. We zoom in now. John chapter 18. We're caught up to the story. Here's what it says.
Here's Pilate, verse 29. Pontius Pilate, Roman prefect, Roman governor. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So Pilate goes, Why are you, why are you bothering Rome? If he's committing Jew, religious crime, hold him captive in your religious court. Take away his robe. I don't know. Like, tell him to knock it off. You know, like, put him in time out. Why are you asking me? But we have no right to execute them. So Pilate listens, right? They go, no, no, Pilate, we're not coming here because we want you to help punish him. We want you to kill him. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, Is that your own idea? Or did others tell you about that? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the, help me out. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And you've got to set up this dichotomy. You've got to set up this showdown. You've got this calloused Jewish, long-haired rabbi. Nothing, the, the book of Isaiah says it clearly. There is nothing that would draw us to this man, nothing about, of his beauty that we would behold him, nothing of his stature that anyone would stand in awe of him. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was like a man by whom people would hide their face, and we revered him not. He was not reverable. If you, look, if you pass Jesus in the ancient Near East, and he didn't have a group of people following him, and he wasn't pinned to a cross or healing someone, you would walk right by. And you'd probably go, oh, interesting, that's a small person. He's not that big of a deal. He wasn't right? Astute. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Sorry about that. But this is a Middle Eastern man, and he was of no repute. And so you've got this guy in shackles and chains, and you've got this strong governor, Pilate, walking around this Jewish rabbi. And yet he senses that Jesus has something that he himself doesn't have. And so he asks him this question, what is truth, said Pilate? With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I don't want to charge this guy. I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is, it is my custom for me to release to you one prisoner during Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, not him. Give us Barabbas, a known murderer. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe to mock his majesty and went up to him again and again and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And his crucifixion has begun. And Jesus has descended so low into our humanity that he's about to experience the most painful death imaginable under Roman law. In all of human history. In fact, the very word excruciating, the word we use for like the worst pain you can imagine, literally is from the Latin excrucia, from the cross kind of pain. Excruc. Excruciating pain means it's like cross-like pain. That's how bad it is. This is how intense this suffering was that Jesus underwent for you 
and underwent for me. And imagine the disciples who are sitting there going, we thought it was him. They had no concept of a suffering Messiah. They, had a, they thought he was going to come in on a horse and take over Rome and throw down Pontius Pilate and establish a new system and reign and rule over it. He wasn't going to be born in a stable. He wasn't going to be raised in Nazareth. He wasn't going to be a, a quarry worker. He wasn't going to be a carpenter. He wasn't going to say the things that he said. He wasn't going to associate himself with the lowly, with the prostitutes, with the degenerates, with the Samaritans. He wasn't going to do any of this stuff. But he still did these crazy things. He made the, 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 the blind to see and the lame to walk and the mute to speak and the deaf to hear and the dead to rise again. He did these crazy things, but he's not the Messiah we were looking for. And when he finally gets put to death, he says one phrase to end his whole life. And he uses it in the Greek, tetelestai, which means it is finished. Begs the question, excuse me, what's finished? You're talking about your life? It is finished. Your big plan fell through. All your disciples have abandoned you. You are now being crucified, a traitor's death, and the very people who used to chant Hosanna are now chanting crucify him. Is this your example? Is this your model of a mission complete? Jesus goes, That's, no, 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 no. Do you remember a war from the garden? Do you remember the war between God and mankind? Do you remember the separation between God and his people, the gap that was created, the lack of relationship, the broken union that sin created. The war is over. Jesus hangs his head and dies, and when he does that, the curtain that separates man from God was torn in two in the temple. The ground shook, and all chaos started to reign. Even the soldiers in the audience of what was happening started to look up at Jesus and say, surely this man was the son of God. But if he stays dead, then everything he said is false. Pilate puts guards in front of the tomb to make sure that no one messes with the body. He takes his best and his brightest and his strongest fighters armed to the teeth with Roman weaponry. He puts a seal on the tomb and makes a simple decree. If you touch the seal, I murder you. And on the third day at the break of dawn, it's like an earthquake took place. All the soldiers fall over like dead men, and the stone rolls away. The disciples come not to celebrate the resurrection because they didn't think it was coming. They came to put perfume on his dead and decaying body, but his body isn't there. Confused at first, unsure of what's going on, Jesus finally appears to them and tells them the truth. He says, now you know that the checks I wrote with my life of what I can do, that I have the power to make dead things live, all those checks have cleared. I am who I said I am, worthy of worship, ascending into glory. I am the king of the universe, the king of all people. And in doing so, the crowds start to gather, and they start to lean in, and he has started another in the middle of Jerusalem, that conversations start taking place. I've seen him again. I've seen him again. Remember that guy? Remember the one that we said, crucify him? I saw him again. What do we do now? If we saw him again, that means he's the Messiah. People start to freak out. They remember what they just said. Crucify him, crucify him. Wait, he came back. Now what do I do? I put that guy to death. I chanted for God's crucifixion. Fear and trembling. We're glad I wasn't God. Because if I was God and I was Jesus, I'd come back and go, 
crucify him, crucify him. You don't have to raise your hand if you're the one who chanted crucify him. I know everything because I'm God. And then I would have turned everyone who chanted crucify him into snakes. And I would have been like, sorry. And I would have one by one just stepped on him and been like, who crucify him? But, friends, I am petty and stupid and God is not. He paves a way even for those who chant for his death to come to him. After 40 days, he rises back into heaven. Pentecost takes place. Just a few short weeks after he raises back from the dead, he goes and talks to people. He talks all around town. At one point, he shows up to 500 people at once so that there's no talk about, oh, only a few people saw him. He talks to everyone. He's got a physical body. He eats, he dances, he parties, he lives. Both spirit and body resurrected. And he ascends into heaven and he sends his Holy Spirit. And then Peter stands up on the southern steps of the temple while the very people who chanted crucify him gather around and they go, Peter, what do we do? We killed him. Is he mad? What do we, what do, we do now? How soon is he going to kill all of us? What, what do we do in response to these things? And Peter presents them the gospel. And that's the whole rest of our time tonight. I'm just going to walk through. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to the book of Romans. It's two books to the right of the book of John. And here's what I want you to do while you're turning there. I want to do a little bit of a role play, okay? Here's what I'm talking about. I want you to pretend that right now I just finished the chapel and I just said, amen, and everyone goes out there. And you come catch me afterwards. And you go, well, hey, Chris, 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 Chris. Hey, 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 hey. Last night you talked about sin, and how, how sin leads us to death and that we, can, we are objects of wrath and that we are enemies of God. But I don't want to be that. I recognize that Jesus paid the price for my sin. I want to be a child of God. I want to know him. I want to be counted among the saints. I want to be with him forever. I want to love him. I want him to know me. I want to be a child. I want to be adopted. I want to be saved. What must I do to be saved? I would go, oh, man, I can't believe I forgot that. That seems important. But I want you to pretend right now that it's just you and me. We're outside the snack shop over here. You get your milkshake. I get mine. And I go, okay, you and me, one-on-one, -on -one, let's walk through this. Your question is the same as the people at, after Pentecost. What must I do to be saved? And I say, that is the best question that the human form could possibly ask. I would start in Romans chapter 1. I want you guys to read this for yourself in your own text so that you don't know, so that you don't hear it from me. You read it for yourself. And once again, I'm going to ask you to give an adult response to the truth of the scriptures. Do you understand? Romans chapter 1. I would start by saying, you ask me, what is the truth of the gospel, Chris? What is the absolute truth? What is the most important truth anyone could ever utter? What is the most important and truthful thing that anyone could ever know? I would say it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it starts like this. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 20, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You're like, bro, that's a, that's a long sentence. What does that mean? Simply put, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with this truth. There is a God. That's all Paul's saying. Paul is saying, if you look at the world and you look at it honestly, it screams for a creator. Let me tell you what I mean. 
let's pretend you and I are walking out in the woods. We get off trail. There's a little group of us walking around, uh, and we, we go off trek, and we kind of get lost. And then we stumble upon this chapel, and we walk inside, and I go, holy cow. We've never seen it before. We walk up. We see this like LED board with like millions and millions of tiny little dots. We see the lights and the ceiling and what appears to be lettering, truth be told. And we see all the intricacies of the design. We take apart the instrumentation. We take apart the drum set and the keys. And we see it all uniformly fitting together. We know that something miraculous has happened here. And I say, dude, what do you think built this place? And you would go, you mean who? No, man. What? do you think built this place? You see, here's what I think happened. I think there was a strong wind somewhere in the east, and it started blowing, and, and, and it, it, it made contact with the trees, and then the trees started to split apart, and they became these thin sheets, and they turned white, and those white sheets got draped over. See these beams that are made of metal? There must have been some kind of like liquid hot magma from the ground, and what happened is the volcano came up, and it, it made these cross beams, and then, oh my gosh, you'll never believe this. I've, I saw a fox out there that had an attitude problem, but I think it actually was good at like electricity and stuff, so it came up. And one by one, it grabbed like fireflies and started sticking them in each of these things. But that's not the end. Then, then these mockingbirds were like, I want to capture the sound of my voice. So they started with the key. At what point would you go, Chris, are you high? <laughs> right? Like, there's a point. Where you look at the intricacy of this tent, you look at the intricacy of this ensemble, and if anyone were to ask you, what do you think put this together on accident, you would go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why? Because you and I know the most simple, basic truths, which is any design, any complexity in nature screams for design, screams for intelligence. You want to know who knows that? My four-year-old son does. We're out in the woods, and there's carved into a tree uh, at Hume Lake, up at the lake. It says C plus R with a heart around it. My four-year-old, who was three at the time, looked at that tree and said, Dad, who wrote that? My son did not go, so beavers, right? <laughs> I'm thinking... Bear? No. Even that would, would be a thinking animal. But he certainly didn't go, wind, rain, right? That's it, simple. C plus R with a heart around it. And no one in the whole cosmos would look at that and go, accident, mistake, not on purpose, not intelligently designed, what a happy accident, phenomenal. C plus R with a heart around it. Francis Collins was an atheist. And he was in charge of mapping out the human genome, which is quite literally the most complex, complicated code in the whole universe. The human genome has hundreds of millions of tiny letters in part of it. Every single cell in your body has DNA in it that is told to replicate more of you. And the code and the sequencing of it puts any modern computer to shame. 
your body's ability to replicate itself, to transpose what I'm saying into the English that your brain understands, for your pupil and retinas and eye to perceive me, to see everything that I'm wearing, to know the colors of what I'm wearing, to see, to understand, to look at, to perceive, to make sense of, to think, to think on memories. Remember the last time you were at Disneyland? You know what just popped in your head? Disneyland did. You didn't see a picture of it. There's not a slideshow in your brain. In your cerebellum, your brain has the ability to, through electric impulses, call to mind images you saw 10 and 15, well, not 10, 15 years ago. You're not even 15. But for the older people, 10 and 15 years ago, right? You can do it on the snap of a whim, and your brain has more electrical connections and neurosynapses in it than the entire county of Los Angeles combined. And if you are able to look at C plus R and say that is designed and to look at your human genome and your sequencing and your brain and your power and your complexity and say you are a mistake, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You can't go C plus R, definitely designed. Infinitely more complex tent. Accident. And, and that's what we do. The naturalistic community simply says, I think this is all a mistake. But they will, imagine you're in, a, you're in a cabin and you have alphabet cereal, right? And in the alphabet cereal, your friends didn't show up, you're in the middle of nowhere, it's creepy, it's weird, the lights are out, and you're eating your alphabet cereal by candlelight, okay? You're eating your alphabet cereal by candlelight, and you get up because you heard a noise, and you knock over the alphabet cereal, but you know, you've got to go see what it is. So you go, it's nothing, but you come back. And the alphabet cereal spells out, don't go to sleep. D-O-N-T-G-O-T-O-S-L-E-E-P. And all of us would go, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm done, right? Like, police, someone, Ghostbusters, so, just, you got to call someone. Someone's got to help me. There's someone in this house. None of us would be going, would you look at that? <laughs> Francis Collins. Francis Collins, the man responsible for mapping out the human genome, did not believe in God until he mapped out the human genome, and then he wrote a book called The Language of God, and he is now a professing theist. Why? Because he knows what you know, what I know. Things that are designed, that are coded, that are intricate, that are complex, that are complicated. Subatomic particles to the 13th and 14th dimension is not a mistake. Friend, you are not a mistake. You were made on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. And the book of Romans chapter 1 says, if you don't know that, let me make it clear to you. You are not an accident. You are known, you are loved, you are valued. And the God of the universe wants you to know him as he knows you. Romans 1, 19 to 21. Then you would go, okay, so the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel starts with there is a God. Yep, and then it gets worse before it gets better. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, we talked about this last night. Well, okay, so there's a God. So what? Ooh, yikes. Here's what happened. Verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. What does that say? Uh, because there's a God, we rebelled against him, and we're all at war with him. Romans 3.23 reciprocates the same idea. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us who were made to worship God have turned to our own ways and worshiped other things. We turned from God and we worshiped self. We worshiped creation and not the creator. 
And in doing so, we have rebelled against God. And that sin cost us something. What did it cost us? Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 23 says this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. In, in, when you hear the word death in scripture, it almost never talks about the physical body dying. Everyone knows that's coming. So this would have no significance. When the Bible says the wages of sin, what's a wage? Okay, a wage, if you work at In-N-Out and you work for 10 hours and you get paid $10 an hour, your wage for that day is $100. Good, great math, 10 points. You, you have earned yourself. The work you've done has earned you $100. So Paul says the sin that we've committed and the things that God wanted us to do that we left undone not just the sins that we commit, but also the good that God would have us do that we don't do. We're responsible for both. And God says, the work that you've done here in rebellion against me has earned you a wage. And the wage of your sin is death. That's hell. That's eternal separation from God. That is complete cut off from the king with everything that goes along with that. No comfort, no peace, no harmony, no encouragement, no ability to turn to, to, back to God. Why? Someone asked me this today. How come no one in hell, when they get to hell, goes, uh, never mind, I changed my mind and I want to go back? It's the opposite. The only reason that your heart may turn to Jesus tonight is because the Holy Spirit of God has turned your heart towards Jesus. Guess who doesn't go to hell? The Holy Spirit isn't there. God is not present. No one will turn your heart back to God. It's the Spirit's job. He is the founder and the finisher of our faith, the text tells us. The wages of sin is death. But there's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. When do you tend to get gifts? Help me out. Don't, don't freak out. Just help me out. When, there's two main times probably in a year where you tend to get gifts. Betsy? Birthday. Betsy, did you get a gift on your birthday last year? Yeah. Do you believe that you deserve gifts on your birthday? That you like them, but we really can't make heads or tails of why you get gifts on your birthday. You don't even remember it, right? We always, you ever had someone that forgets your birthday? You're like, you forgot my birthday. It's like, dude, you forgot your own birthday. Do any of you guys remember coming out of your mother's womb? No, well, you don't remember it. Neither did they. What's the big deal? And for some reason, every time the earth revolves around the sun one time, we give you gifts. Do you deserve them? No, they're called gifts. It's freely given. You also get them on Christmas. That's not even your birthday. It's Jesus' birthday, and you get gifts. These are called gifts. You see, sin has earned you a wage that you deserve. God has given you a gift that you don't. You see, the first part says wage. That's all about deserving. See, the end part says gift. That's undeserved. The wages of sin is death. So I would say, the truth of the gospel, there is a God. We have rebelled against him. That rebellion has destined all of us to hell unless we receive the free gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 5 verse 8, turn one chapter back, and here's what it says, one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture. I want you to show you verse 10 in case you've been wondering. Someone asked me today, where does it say in the Bible that we were God's enemies if we aren't his children? Verse 9, since now we have been justified, that means um, God's justice was satisfied. Since now we have been made right, justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's 
we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay? That's where it says we are enemies of God, born into iniquity, dead in our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The old has gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God became sin who knew no sin, that we, sin, could become his righteousness. Here's what it says. Romans 5 verse 8. Here's the next part I would point you to. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the problem, especially for for us religious folks who go to church all the time. You're so familiar with the idea that you don't live up to God's expectations. You're so familiar with the idea of sin. You're so acquainted with it that something has happened in your heart. I really want you to pay attention to this. I really need you to pay attention to this. Can God do anything outside of his character? Is God an accuser? Is God a condemner of his children? Does God sit when you are embarrassed and shameful and heap it on you? Never. Which means if there's a voice in your head where you self-deprecate and talk bad about yourself, if you think God's talking to you when you go, you idiot, you did it again, you're such a moron, how could you do it? Some of us, this is the voice of God in our life. The problem with that is God is always consistent with his character, which means God's voice is always consistent with his character. What is the character of God? He is a tender, gentle, loving father. And if you are ridiculing, shaming, embarrassing, and self-deprecating yourself, that is not the voice of Jesus in your heart. It is the enemy trying to lure you back into your shame because once you're in shame, you isolate yourself. And when you isolate yourself like a zebra on the savanna, the Satan prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. Who does he go for? The isolated shameful. And there's a response to the past couple of days when I'm talking about sin that the religious ones in here, we so get acquainted with the fact that we haven't lived up to what God has done that we sit and bask in that shame. Friends, no more, Romans 8, 1, for there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. How do I know that? Because God demonstrates his own love. What's the motivation of God's work on the cross for you? Love. He loves you. And he doesn't love you the way that you don't know how to love people around you. He loves you the way that a good, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God of the universe loves you. That means unconditionally, nothing that you've done, gift of God. God demonstrates his love for you. It's so silly. Why the heck does he love me? Why? Because it's a gift, you know? And, and what's funny is, like, I got five kids, and I just picture one of them one day asking me, Dad, why do you love me? And I'm like, what kind of a stupid question is that? Like, I'm going to go, well, because you help with the chores. Not. Because you've made my life easier. Not. Because you've increased my revenue. Not. Because you've... You know I'll be 50 years old before I've wiped my own butt as much as I've wiped someone else's butt? I'll be 50. And if my son ever walked up to me and says, why do you love me? It's like, Peyton, because you're mine. What do you mean? Any dad in here will tell you the same thing. Any good father will tell you the same thing. I don't love you because you're beneficial. I don't love you because you're cute, because you're tall, because you're smart, because you're not. It doesn't matter to me. Not because you're not not because you make me laugh, not because you bring in capital. I just I love you because you're mine. Why does God love you? Because you're his. 
That's some good ding, ding news right there. And we're sitting outside the, the snack shop, and you go, let me see if I got this. You tell me. You say, there is a God. I've rebelled against him. That rebellion should cost me hell. But Jesus underwent the pain and death that I deserved so that he could take my place because he demonstrated his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Jesus died for me. Is that what you're telling me? I would respond, yes. And you would go, then what do I do? How do I receive this? How do I move from an object of God's wrath destined for hell to an object of God's love, child of the king, destined for glory with him forever? Romans chapter 10. Here we go. Romans chapter 10 says this. Being at verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are made right, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and you are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, there's no parenthetical phrase after that, but only for the religious elite, but, but only if you haven't messed up too much in your life. Listen, guys, I know that a lot of you have been through a lot of stuff. A lot of us have lived our whole life in rebellion against God. You've messed up. You've done some really God, not God-honoring things. You think to yourself, Chris, if you only knew what I've done and what I've seen and what I've been through and, and, and the per people that I've hurt and the sins that I've committed, it, <laughs> you might think your sin is powerful, but the grace of the cross is greater still. Friend, you're not strong enough to out the cross. You're just not. For... If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you see there's a twofold nature here. How do I receive that gift? How do I move from wrath to love? Simple. Twofold. It's not what you do, it's what he did for you. But here's how it says we receive it. We first of all say, Jesus, I believe that when you died on that cross 2,000 years ago that you paid the price for my sins. I'm sorry for my rebellion. I want to be your child. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead on your behalf, and then in response to that, because God has given you this precious gift, he is now the Lord of your life. Jesus is Lord. That means from here on out, you say, God, my life is yours. I'm going to follow you. You know what, guys? You're still going to mess up. You're still going to sin. You're still going to do things wrong. But now, having confessed your sins and given your life over, you mess up as a child of God. You mess up as someone whose sins have already been forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west. That's the power of Jesus' grace to you. And now that we're saved, we don't keep on sinning, 1 John chapter 3 says. We respond to his grace by saying, God, how can I live for you? What can I do in response to these things? That is the heart of a true convert to say, I don't want this world anymore. I only want Jesus. Even though every day you're going to mess up. I mess up every day. Every day. In thought, word, action, and even attitude. Not just the things that I do wrong, but the good things I know I'm supposed to do that I just refrain from. But I do so now as Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says. If you want to look it up, you can. Sorry. I want you to see the text. I was going to quote it, but I want you to read it. Romans chapter 8 verse 15 
when we do that, what happens to our position with God? What happens to our relationship with God? We move from chapter 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received when you confess your sin and you receive His work on your behalf and you declare Him Lord of your life, God gives you His Holy Spirit in that very moment. And that Spirit does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brings about your adoption to sonship. And by then you may call out to Him, Abba, Father. You are now His child. You may call him father, for you are his son and you are his daughter. I tried to be as clear as possible. There is a God. We fell short. That falling shortness deserved us death. Because we deserve death, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In response to that, what should we do? If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that salvation means the spirit lives inside of us. By now we are his children because we've been adopted into his kingdom. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's calling you to respond to that even tonight. Some of you for the first time this week have understood that and you hadn't understood it before. For some of you, you've never even been in church before and you feel the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart saying, this is you. I'm calling you to myself. Child, you are mine. For some of us, we've been doing the church thing for a long time, but we've been hiding from God. You know a lot about God, but you don't know God. We live in shame. We live in embarrassment. We are far from God, even though we sit in his church week after week, but we do not surrender our life to him. We haven't received what he's done for us on the cross. And the power of the cross is that the punishment that I deserved was laid on Jesus. We switched destinies. Jesus underwent the hell that I deserved, that I could receive the heaven that he had earned. You see, Jesus, the God of the universe, had to treat his son like a murderer in order to treat this murderer like his son. God had to treat Jesus like a traitor because you and I, traitors, can now be treated like his son. That's the penalty switch. And this is what Jesus is calling you to. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And if you've never received the work of Jesus Christ in your life, this isn't, if, if you're walking with Jesus, this isn't like some yearly commitment. There's not like a re-up contract, you know. This is not what this is. But if you've, if you've never once said, God, take my sin. I receive the grace of the cross. I want to be found in you. I love you. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. And you are the Lord of my life. If you've never done that before, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to pray along with me. And then here's what I'm going to do. When I'm done praying, I want you to pray with me. And when I'm done, I'm going to count to three. On the count of three, everyone who for the first time said that prayer and surrendered their life over to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to ask you to stand up as a public declaration. See, in the Bible, when, when Peter was asked, what must I do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized. In other words, turn from your sin and turn towards Jesus. And then he calls them to a public declaration of their faith. That's what we're going to do in a, in a way here. You receive what Christ has done, and then we're going to stand up in unity saying, I'm part of this family now. God is my father, I am his son, I am his daughter. And we're going to make a public declaration of what God has been doing in our hearts this week and maybe for the last dozen years of your life. I want you to pray with me.
God, we know that the only reason the gospel is even possible is because you demonstrated your love for us in this. You looked at the world when we rebelled against you back in the Garden of Eden. You could have scrapped it and thrown it out, and instead you set a course of action in motion to redeem it, even though you know it would cost you your own son. I don't know why you did that, but I am so grateful for it. And God, there's some of us here tonight that for the first time, we want to cry out to you as Abba, Father. We want to cry out to you in our sin and in our shame. We want you to take it away from us, God. And, and so some of us right now, we're going to pray along with me as I pray. And God, we want to pray to you. We want to give you our life for the first time. If that's you in this room, pray this prayer along with me. In your hearts, you don't need to say it out loud. God can hear your thoughts. God, I've rebelled against you in thought, word, action, and attitude. My life is filled with idolatry, chasing other gods, worshiping creation. And I've just made it worse every day. I know that my heart is far from you. But God, I recognize now the brokenness of my sinful condition. I recognize my rebellion. I don't want to be at war with you anymore. And I don't know why you made a way for peace and for reconciliation. But God, I trust in it. I trust that Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. I trust that he came back from the dead and proved that he has the power to make dead things live. And God, I trust that when I die, you will bring me from death to life just like Jesus did because the Holy Spirit power that raised Jesus from the dead can now live inside of me. And God, in response to your incredible grace, you are the Lord and God of my life from here on out. God, I, I know I'm going to mess up but I want you to be my north star. I want you to be my compass. I want your word to be my guide. And I want to follow you all the days of my life until I see you face to face in heaven. Thank you for loving a wretch like me. Thank you for your grace. Amazing. God, I love you. And I'm so grateful to be your son, to be your daughter. Thank you for your work on the cross, for your resurrection power that now lives in me. So you name me pray. Amen. If you, for the first time tonight, said that prayer, and you, you never have before, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to stand up. One, two, three, stand up. You can stay standing. Stay standing for just one second. Let me talk to you for a second. Listen, I don't, I don't know exactly, look at me. I don't know exactly what God's doing in your heart as you stand right now. But we want to have follow-up conversations with you as your youth pastors and your counselors. And we're just going to ask you in a little bit a simple question if you've stood. And it's just, hey, why did you stand? What's been going on in your heart? What has God called you to do? I want to tell you that as you make a profession of faith, the scripture says that angels and the heavens rejoice when even one sinner turns to repentance and we get to sit here in the middle of a party of people turning away from the sin and turning towards Jesus. There's nothing better in all of life. So here's what we're going to do. You guys who are standing can sit down and we are going to do what people all throughout scripture do when they are saved. They respond with worship. They respond in adoration of Jesus, in adoration of the king who has made a way for us. Would you stand with me as we close in a song of worship? <laughs>